Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gura in for Jen White, and it's the News Roundup. Let's get into it. Memphis is bracing for protests tonight after the expected release of body cam footage from a brutal arrest. 29-year-old Tyree Nichols died three days after a violent confrontation with five now former Memphis police officers during a traffic stop. His mother is asking for peaceful demonstrations. We'll have the latest. But first, what more do we know about the mass shootings that left 18 people dead in California over the span of just three days? And with President Biden calling on Congress to act, what's next for our very divided government? Todd Zwillick is the host of Vice's Breaking the Vote series. Mary Harris is the host of Slate's daily news podcast, What's Next? And Josh Meyer is the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Todd, let me start with you, and we'll go to California first here, a state that is still reeling after these mass shootings, two that happened over 72 hours, the governor of that state calling this tragedy upon tragedy. On Saturday, 10 people were killed at a Monterey Park dance hall. An 11th victim died later in a hospital. Then on Monday, seven people were killed at and around a farm in Half Moon Bay, both shootings coming less than a week after six people were killed at a home in the Central Valley in California. The victims there, including a teenage mother and her baby. Uh, Todd, let's start in Monterey Park. What have we learned since the attack about what motivated it and about the victims? Um, Very little, as far as I know. Um... The motive of the attacker, as far as I know, remains a mystery, Um, and in Half Moon Bay um, seems to have been targeted at at fellow farm workers. Um, It's all all a terrible tragedy, and I think um, it's left a lot of people confused and reeling as to where the foothold is here in terms of policy. Um, It raises all of the familiar questions about uh, emotional stress, mental health. To some people, it's raised cultural questions. Does this have something to do with the Asian American community? Because the assailants apparently were Asian American as well as the victims. And and that seems to not be the case. I think if anything, um, it highlights that the pressures that are causing mass shootings consistently and repeatedly across this country, in places where adults congregate, in schools where people are being murdered, this has become a grim ritual as we're all aware. Those pressures cross the culture. They're in Asian communities, they're in white communities, they're in black communities, and of course, common denominator is access to guns. There's no way around it. I think I think people are looking for the differences here, and to me, it's the commonalities and the consistency, the grim consistency uh, that jumps out. Mary Harris, turning to you, I just want to ask you about this moment, picking up on what Todd was saying there. There is this routine, as he put it. Uh, the question, is this time different, has become a, a trope. How are you processing or thinking about what's happened uh, with these shootings in California? I guess the thing I can't get out of my mind is this statistic that, you know, the first weeks of 2023 in America, we've had 40 mass shootings this month. And that's more than any other start of the year on record. And so it just seems relentless. And I think we keep getting stuck in the same conversation about, you know, right to carry arms, you know, right to feel safe. And I think we're at this point right now where I think a lot of smart people are talking about how we need to talk about harm reduction when it comes to guns. We have to talk about what we're going to do to keep people safe. And the issue with that, you know, it's it's a it's an approach that's worked very, very well for um 
you know, vehicle deaths, for instance, people all got on the same page. You know, we all want to be safe in our vehicles. Um, you know, it's also an approach that many people embrace when it comes to drug use. But what it requires is it requires both sides coming to the table and living in the same shared reality. Like both sides need to admit these are dangerous objects. These are things that are hurting people. And I think both sides also need to admit we're not going to get rid of them. Like they're here. We have more guns than people in the United States. So it's not going to be like we're going to ban our way out of this. There are lots of other things we can do. But I think that we all kind of need to accept that shared reality, take that as a baseline and move forward. And of course, there's this sticky issue of the Second Amendment here, which is, you know, the right to bear arms. And, you know, notably, California had an assault weapons Mm -hmm. ban. And so, you know, the weapon used in Monterey Park was technically illegal in California. And so you could look at that and you could say, you could use it as evidence, like, see, this doesn't work. Or you could say like, well, California is just a state, we need this on the federal level. So I think we all need to get on the same page so that we're seeing the same picture. And of course, we're not very good at that right now. Josh Meyer, I want to ask you just about how this is widening. I think that's what what Todd was indicating just a, just a moment ago that we had the sense that you know this was happening among uh, the shooters were, were younger people. They were happening at schools, and now we're seeing the, the, them happen more frequently uh, in more spaces. The shooters in this case, uh, one man was sixty six, the other seventy two. And you look at data from from the Violence Project, this nonpartisan nonprofit group. The the average age, I believe, of of a of a killer who's killed more than four people in a public place since nineteen sixty six, thirty two years old. Talk a bit about that, a bit about that, if you would, Josh. Just sort of how how this is widening, how this is becoming a, a bigger problem. Uh, well, thanks, David. As you know, we're going to talk about a very young shooter um, later in this in the show, uh, a six year old who brought a gun to school. But you know, the trend is actually uh, it's very unfortunate. It's actually trending lower. These two cases up in Cali- in Cali- here out in California are outliers in the sense that one was sixty six, the other was seventy two. But, you know, I, I'm a frequent um, – uh, I show up on the, the gun violence website frequently just to look for trends and so mm-hmm. forth. And it is trending younger. There's a lot more younger shooters. Uh, some of the ones over the past couple of years have been even 18 and 19 years old. I mean, we had the one uh, in Uvalde and and other places like that where, where you know, you're seeing teenagers doing it. So, you know, it's a big problem and, and it, it, with regard to what Mary said – you know, I don't see us ever getting on the same page about this. I mean, I've covered these, you know, for 35 years now. And, you know, every time there's a mass shooting, uh, you know, the the NRA, you know, waits a couple days till the dust settles and says, basically, it's not the guns, it's the shooters. And, you know, you, you know, we're never going to stop that. You also now have this phenomenon called ghost guns, where people can, um, you know, literally... Um, manufacture most of a gun and get the other parts online at home. So, you know, gun control is becoming much more um, of a, a politically fraught, but also almost logistically impossible issue. So, you know, it's 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 a big problem. I think in the first case, this the shooter, Hugh Contron, um, you know, he was described by um, uh, friends uh, as an angry loner who appeared to have a grudge against the world, not just his ex-wife or certainly the dance studio that he shot. Um, you know, the mushroom, far- the 66-year-old that was arrested and has apparently confessed in mm-hmm. Redwood City um, was an immigrant farmer uh, charged with premeditated murder in the fatal shooting of seven co-workers at a mushroom farm. But, you know, what, what he said 
um, as far as we can tell, is just that, you know, that he was almost kept like in slave-like conditions and that he just snapped, I think, and he suffered from some sort of mental illness. He said he endured years of bullying combined with long hours of working on these mushroom farms uh, and that those issues were never addressed. So, um, you know, I do think that, you know, that one of the issues here is uh, that you also have to look elsewhere besides just the guns. You have to look at, uh, you know, bullying, um, workplace violence, domestic violence. We have a lot of work cut out for us. President Biden has urged Congress to take up an assault weapons ban in the wake of the shootings. We asked Democratic Representative Raja Krishnamurthy how likely it is for that to happen in this divided Congress. Well, as you know, we've had a change in control in the House. So Republicans uh, operate, uh, have the majority in the House. Um, they haven't shown a willingness to move on this type of legislation. Uh, and indeed, in the last Congress, when we passed similar legislation through the House, it's stalled because of filibusters in the Senate. Todd Swillick, we've, we've gotten this new assault weapons ban of 2023, the, the legislative language, 126 pages uh, in length, introduced by Senator Dianne Feinstein of, of, of California. Uh, and we've heard, heard the president calling for this to be passed once again, uh, to the point that Josh was making just a moment ago. How, how do things seem or feel on Capitol Hill vis-a-vis this, this legislation? Yeah, not, not good if you're a proponent of this kind of legislation. Dianne Feinstein has introduced this assault weapons ban many, many times, uh, also bans high-capacity clips in addition to some other changes. Um, there is no broad appetite among Republicans. There's no appetite whatsoever among Republicans to pass this legislation. I would just leave it at that. Um, the Not only did the House Republican Conference really have no interest in an assault weapons ban, um, everything about the legislation that they that they, the legislative program that they're pushing forward is really in the opposite direction, um, pulling Kevin McCarthy toward a, a far right ideological stance. Um, he would pay a major price if he tried to put an assault weapons ban on the floor of the House. So I would tell you to not be prepared for that. And in the Senate, where there was some very, very narrow bipartisan gun legislation passed in the last Congress, it was really the lowest hanging fruit possible. It didn't approach anywhere to an assault weapons ban. There is, There are not 60 votes for it. Um, so um, you could talk a lot, a lot longer about how the Senate, I think, the Senate is an institution that has become overwhelmed by the culture of guns in this country. Um, Josh was alluding to this, but gun ownership in this country has passed from a policy issue to an identity issue. It's been made that way over several decades. And um, the Senate as an institution, I think, um, given the death and the horror and the violence that we're witnessing in this country is um, they're outclassed. They're overwhelmed by it. There aren't 60 votes for it. Um, The House Republicans have no interest in it. And um, that's as far as it's going to go. You're listening to the News Roundup. We're discussing some of this week's biggest headlines. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump into more from the News Roundup. Five former Memphis police officers were indicted on murder charges in the death of Tyree Nichols on Thursday. Memphis Police Chief Sarah Lynn C.J. Davis issued a video statement earlier this week. This is not just a professional failing. This is a failing of basic humanity toward another individual. This incident was heinous, reckless, and inhumane. And in the vein of transparency, when the video is released in the coming days... You will see this for yourselves. C.J. Davis firing the five black officers for violating department policy during Nichols's traffic stop earlier this month. Video of the traffic stop, as she said, scheduled to be released later today. Mary, I'd like to turn to you and, and just ask you sort of what further details we know about what happened, what led to Tyree Nichols's death. 
Well, so we know that there was a stop on January 7th. The claim was reckless driving. And it seems like there were a couple of confrontations between the officer and Tyree Nichols, the officers, excuse me. Um, and so there's a real question about like what what happened here. You know, these are five people versus one man. I just want to say, I don't know that I recall a police chief or really anyone in law enforcement speaking the way that C.J. Davis has about this video before its release. It's really interesting to me because, you know, of course, we've seen so many of these vehicle, these videos over the years. And I, I don't know what's going to happen now. They're, they clearly have a plan where they're going to release this video tonight after 6 p.m. Central Time. And they're doing a lot of warning, like you saw C.J. Davis on CNN this morning, you know, really telling people this is heinous. This is you're going to see acts that defy humanity. I mean, what a way to kind of prelude what you're about to see. And I don't know what that means. You know, we've seen cities really erupt in the past over things like this. And I guess the question for me becomes, what happens in the next few days as this video is released? People see it. Clearly, it's very, very upsetting. What do they do? And then how do the police react to them? Given that their own chief is saying that this video should upset you. This is wrong. I have fired and arrested these men. So I, I just... I, I find myself having a lot of questions right now, not just about what happened, but about what happens next. Josh Meyer, I'll turn to you on that point. And we heard from Tyree Nichols' mother last night at a vigil at a skate park in Memphis. She told the, the, those who'd gathered there, I want each and every one of you to protest in peace. We got this statement from President Biden as well, saying outrage is understandable, but violence is never uh, acceptable. Just Just picking up on what Mary's saying there, this is a, a video that I gather is about an hour in length. Tyree Nichols' mother couldn't make it through the video. We've heard from Ben Crump, the attorney who's representing the, the family here. Um, what are your expectations for, for what's likely to happen here? And what have we heard from mayors and, and public safety officials in, in cities around the country? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, this is going to be bad. It's going to be really horrible. I mean, speaking from experience, and, you know, I, I worked at the LA Times. I was the one of the police reporters back in 1991 when we had the Rodney King beating. And I remember first watching that beating and thinking, man, this is going to be really bad. And of course, after that, we had the LA riots, you know, which basically was a tectonic shift in, in the, you know, police shootings and brutality and the way they're covered and, and the re reaction to them. Um, I think this is going to be one of the worst ones I've ever seen. I mean, David Roush, who is the director of the Tennessee or is the director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, uh, told reporters he was sickened by what he saw you know, this is a, a kid, essentially, who was, I think, 200 feet <clears throat> from his home. And at one point, I think he was, you know, calling for his mother and telling the police, I just want to go home. So as far as we can tell, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the suspicion of reckless driving is, has always been used as kind of a racist trope where police will, you know, pull somebody over for a broken taillight when they wouldn't pull somebody over for that if they were white. Uh, we don't know actually the details, uh, but all I can tell is that um, that when this video is going to be released, it's going to be really, really bad. Attorneys for Nichols' family say that he died from, quote, extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. Uh, we're told that the beating lasted more than three minutes. Um, he was tased, pepper sprayed, restrained, defenseless the entire time. Hmm. So um, I think it's going to be a big problem. I mean, there's never 
a good time to release a video like this either, but I have to say that releasing it right before nightfall is probably a really bad idea because there's going to be a lot of rioting. Uh, we just got an alert that the D.C. police is going on full alert. I think police departments all around the country are going to be bracing for riots. So this is something that's not just going to happen in Memphis. I mean, we have to expect and assume that there's going to be a lot of community anger, and rightfully so, about this, and there's going to be a lot of police response. I just hope that there's you know, that this doesn't have uh, repercussions and more um, violence either from the uh, protesters or from the police in other cities. But, um, you know, buckle your seatbelts. It's mm. going to be bad. Todd Zwillick, pulling back and, and looking at the, the federal government's response to this, I, I read a bit of that statement from President Biden that was released uh, that was released yesterday. We, we also know there's a, a civil rights investigation that's uh, that's been opened by the Justice Department. And it's not the first. I mean, there are uh, police departments uh, across the United States uh, under consent decrees, um, a number of them, certainly Baltimore, uh, other cities as well. Um, so the Justice Department launching a civil rights investigation stepped in quickly here. I, I mean, I, one of the many... Many terrible features uh, that Josh and Mary just just described of this of this uh, horrific crime. That the, the speed of the reaction, not only from the local police and local officials, um, but also from the federal government, is a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, people seem to have learned something about managing um, these terrible killings and uh, and police abuses when they happen. I don't know what's going to happen tonight when it's released. Um, I, I I hope I hope that Josh is wrong. I know that Josh hopes that he's wrong yes, about how, yeah, yeah. how bad this is going to be. He's, he's, he's not wrong to warn about it. Um, but the, the, the speed and the preparation uh, that you alluded to earlier, I think, is something that's different here. C.J. Davis has been preparing everyone. The family has been pre- preparing everyone for, um, for the horror and the graphic mm-hmm. nature of what they're about to see. Um, there's been an awful lot of press done um, to try to to try to lay the groundwork to maybe lessen the shock a little bit, if it can at all. And I don't I don't know that that will work. But also the speed of immediate discipline, firing the officers right away, charging the officers right away. Sharp contrast to other cases we've seen, um, like Breonna Taylor in mm-hmm. Kentucky, for instance, um, where where discipline drags on and is extremely dissatisfying to the community and to the family, and and rightfully so. Um, at least in that regard, so far, different and um, different from the Justice Department, too, in this immediate reaction. Yeah, I think of Elijah McClain that lasted, was measured in months and, yeah. and years, not in, not in days. Uh, an email from Catherine, or Caitlin, excuse me, coming in here. I think announcing a release time for the video of a man being beat to death is really creating a high level of suspense that could create a more hostile situation uh, in the aftermath. I want to move here to Virginia to something Josh mentioned a little while back. Attorneys for a Virginia teacher shot by a six-year-old student say the school was warned three times that the child had a gun on the day of the shooting itself. Lawyer Diane Toscano says an hour before her client was shot, a school worker offered to search the student for the gun. Another teacher had already searched the student's backpack. He was told to wait the situation out because the school day was almost over. Let that sink in. Abby Zorner was shot in front of those horrified kids, and this school and community are living the nightmare. All because the school administration failed to act. The teacher planning to sue the Newport News School District. Um, Mary, what happens next with with this case? We've seen the superintendent lose a a vote of confidence. Uh, He's out. Um, The the school board in Newport News saying this is a moment to change tact and um, and, and chart a new path forward. They've had other incidents related to guns. They're now metal detectors, I think, at schools across that, that school district. Um, this is just really an astonishing story. Yeah, it really is. And I'll say 
when I heard about all of the metal detectors at the schools, I just thought, is that really what we want to happen next, especially given all that we know now about this case? You know, the reporting from The Washington Post, they've, they've really done a lot of work here to develop sources. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is, is this teacher who was shot, Abby Zorner, you know, she had gone to administrators repeatedly for help with this kid. And in fact, the kid's parents were coming to school with him up until the week when the shooting happened because it was clear he needed a care plan. And, or they, I should say. Mm. Um, and I think that it just raises a lot of questions about how we care for kids and how we prevent things like this from happening and who gets heard when a kid is clearly in crisis in this way. You know, there are reports, this is also the Washington Post, about this child threatening to light a teacher on fire and watch her die, you know, that's very explicit and that's very upsetting. And so the question really becomes like, what do you do with that information? And I, I think, I hope we look a little more at that, about the preventative measures, not just like putting metal detectors in school, because, you know, frankly, I hope it is very rare that something like this happens at an elementary school. And I think that hardening our schools is not necessarily a, a step any parent wants to see taken. They, they want us to be able to help kids. And clearly this teacher wanted that as well and was trying to get all the help she could and just felt like she wasn't. So I hope the reckoning includes that, includes like how to, what are the administrative steps that were missed here? A ton of national security news this week. I want to turn to that now. Um, there was news of more classified documents being found this time at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. Of course, coming after classified documents were found at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and at President Biden's home and uh, former office. Um, Josh, let me turn to you first, if I could. Um, there's a tendency here, I think, seeing these three cases to treat them as equal just on face. But um, Philip Bump in the, in the Washington Post writing a very good piece noting that, that the difference here is scale and intent. Right. Yeah, I mean, as with everything else with um, Donald Trump, I mean, he is an outlier in so many ways and has, you know, um, basically broken down or, or um, norms or obliterated the norms of, of acceptable behavior and, um, it, you know, over, over six or seven years now. So in this case, the big difference, of course, is that Trump um, not only had probably a hundred or a thousand times more documents, and in some cases probably more sensitive documents, but he knew that he had them and he refused to return them. I mean, his his responses have been kind of all over the map. He said that he, you know, declassified them himself, sometimes just in his own head without telling anybody. Um, you know, other times they're just you know letters, love letters to Kim Jong Un that he, um, you know, the North Korean leader. That he wanted to keep, but that doesn't that doesn't matter. the The Presidential Records Act says very clearly that those documents are property of the U.S. government. Uh, they're supposed to be handed over to the National Archives and Records Administration uh, for eventual processing, declassification, and access by the American public. Um, so you know he's just an outlier there. I think in the cases of Pence and Biden, and I wrote a story about this last week um, before before the Pence uh, documents came out. You know, there's so many classified documents flying around. There's so many electronic versions of them that it's almost impossible for any uh, official to to really n know for sure that they're not bringing them home. I mean, I talked to somebody who was a top official in the Biden 
um, excuse me, in the Trump and, and Obama administrations. And he said that he would sit down with everybody leaving the White House and go through their boxes with them before they left to make sure they weren't bringing these documents home. But, you know, it, it really can't be stopped, I don't think. I mean, I, I take uh, Biden and, and Pence at their word. Pence has always seemed to me like a real rule follower and somebody who doesn't want to do anything that's wrong. Uh, when it comes to the to the you know the guidelines, and I think that you know they said that these were commingled with their other documents, and they just didn't know about it. And both of them, of course, have been very different uh, from Trump in the sense that as soon as they found the documents, they notified the National Archives and the Justice Department, and they are working with them to hand them over and and find more. So you know it's much different. Um, there are some people that say that if the whole Trump thing with documents hadn't occurred, that this would have been minor news. I'm not sure about that, but. You know, you have to look at them as completely different uh, uh, issues, I think. Todd Zwillick, on, on that point about uh, people are arguing that there's a, there's a system of overclassification in, in Washington. And I wonder how you see or hear that debate shaking out in light of what's, what's happened here. Uh, are there people who – are there more people who agree with that, that they're, that they're kind of erred on the side of, of too much caution or expediency when it comes to classification? Is, is this likely to lead to change on that front, yeah, do you prob- think? Pr- probably overclassification is a thing. And, and it's, also a, it's also a long, low-simmering conversation in Washington, D.C. That's really a story about executive power. It's the executive branch that classifies things. They, they do it in many cases because it's important to classify a document. Many other cases it's done uh, to keep others away or to keep the press away, to keep colleagues away, to keep other agencies away. So th- there's there's a lot of quasi-abuse of that system, I'm sure, and it's something that Josh probably knows more about than, than I. But I would like to circle back on something that Josh mm-hmm. said. And I, I really appreciate, by the way, the, the detailed um, description of the difference between Trump and Biden and Pence that Josh gave there. Those differences are going to be important. We are in for many, many months of we have dual special counsel uh, investigations in the Biden and Trump cases now. Maybe a special counsel in the Pence case. We don't have nothing one yet. yet. Yep. And, and we may in the future. I, I've seen a lot of our colleagues in the press and pundits sort of going on television a lot and kind of saying, well, you know, ultimately Merrick Garland's going to have to decide on charges and it's going to get really complicated now because the public is not going to be able to tell the difference. To the public, it's all just going to seem like this morass of documents and Biden and Trump, both sides are the same. And well, there's not going to be any accountability for Trump because the public's going to glaze over about the difference. You know, isn't that our job? in the press. I think that's our job to do what Josh just did (laughs) and make clear how stark and grave the differences are. I don't know who's going to get charged. I don't know what special counsels are going to say. Um, What we do know of the evidence for Mar-a-Lago is not only mishandling of documents. uh, It appears to be obstruction. uh, It appears to be uh, knowing and willful violation of the law and shoving off of the National Archives and the Justice Department after subpoenas and searches repeatedly, sort of of wanton disregard for the law. Um, And to the extent that you know, journalists are, are analyzing the situation and saying like, well, you know, it's really going to be hard for Merrick Garland to prosecute now because the public just can't tell the difference and both sides do it. Now, that's really not the case. Let's do our jobs. Let's describe the differences as ably done on 1A here on the Friday News Roundup <laughs> very well. Let's keep doing that and let's make clear that people understand the difference and then the, the, the prosecutors can decide what to do. I'll raise my cup of coffee to that. We may hear more about this from the former president, from President Trump, who's being allowed back on Facebook after being banned from that platform after what happened on January 6th. Nick Clegg of Meta writing in a statement, the public should be able to hear what their politicians are saying, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that they can make informed choices at the ballot box. But that does not mean there are no limits to what people can say 
on our platform. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to the News Roundup. Mentioned just a moment ago, former President Trump, uh, it looks like the doors will soon open for him to return to Facebook and to Instagram. The parent company Meta announcing Wednesday it would restore Trump's accounts on the platforms in the coming weeks. His accounts initially suspended after the January 6th Capitol riots. Uh, Mary, I'll turn to you on this. Why is Meta doing this now? What's the justification the company is making for uh, inviting back to the platform the former president of the United States? Well, the justification is basically that people should be able to hear what their politicians are saying. The good, the bad, the ugly. That's literally a quote from Meta. And the question becomes, like, will Trump come back? Because, of course, he was welcomed back to Twitter, but he's got an agreement that he'll post on Truth Social first. So I think the real question is, once the lights are back on on Facebook, does he come back? What does he use it for? Facebook seemed to be especially important to Trump for fundraising. Maybe that's a reason to come back. But, you know, it, I just think in the next few days we'll see. Like, he he just didn't come back to Twitter in the same way that he had. And he'd really been a major force on Twitter. That had been his megaphone. So we'll see. We'll see indeed. Uh, let's turn to Capitol Hill now. A group of House Republicans calling for the creation of special panels that would explore cuts to Social Security uh, and Medicare. Uh, Todd, cutting entitlement programs has long been considered a tall order, to say the least, on, on Capitol Hill. Such a move would likely face steep opposition in the Senate. We were talking about former President Trump. He has told his party uh, to, quote, not cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security. Why is this happening and, and who's driving this push here to uh, to cut entitlements despite it all? Well, the the... the the far right is driving it. You know, you ask about Medicare and Social Security and we have to talk about that, but it's really not about Medicare and Social mm-hmm. Security in some ways because the, the immediate reaction, not only from Donald Trump, but from all over Capitol Hill, I mean, I mean, Kevin McCarthy's office has leaked conversations where he's promised others he's not going to be putting uh, entitlement cuts on the floor of the House. N- nobody in a position to control the politics uh, of of Republicans on the Hill wants the politics of cutting Medicare and Social Security, um, even if they would love for it to happen on policy grounds. This is about the debt limit. Mm-hmm. This is this conversation is about the Republican threat to take the nation's uh, credit health hostage to a demand for spending cuts. Now, why are people, why are Republicans in positions of power saying we're not going to cut Medicare and Social Security? Don't worry. Uh, we have assurances it's not going to happen. Mitch McConnell sending assurances it's not going to happen. They're trying to send signals to one another and more important, trying to send signals to the market. Wall Street is watching this debt limit hostage taking and it's extremely dangerous. I, we, we have a habit and I understand it. I've covered Capitol Hill for way, way too long. I understand the um, the inertia to glaze over something arcane like the debt limit and say, oh, they'll solve it. It'll get solved. It always just, happens. Right? Just yeah. <laughs> always happens. It's just another wonky, uh, just another wonky debate. And David, you tweet about this. You cover this all the time. You, you know of which I speak. This time is different. Capitol Hill knows it's different. Why is it different? Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell are trying to send assurances to other politicians and to the markets that there's not going to be a default on the debt. Here's the problem. Kevin McCarthy does not have control over the far right sort of four to 
8 to 10 to 12 uh, Trumpist MAGA Republicans, arsonists in his conference. Um, It's very, very hard to see. And to people who know this best, it's increasingly hard to see how Kevin McCarthy can both avoid a cataclysmic confrontation over the debt limit and also stay speaker after that. He can avoid it by enlisting Democrats to join reasonable Republicans and raise the debt limit, thus avoiding, you know, a run on bond prices and rising interest rates and everybody's car pay, car loans and mortgage rates go up and it causes a calamity in the economy. He can do that. But then they will turn around the next day and use the new rules that they made him accept in order to become speaker to oust him. So th- it's very, very hard to see around the corners right now that result in, in the safety of the debt limit being raised, which everybody knows it has to be except this group of arsonists. McCarthy knows it has to be. So all of this signaling about Medicare and Social Security is about, you know, is about the the, the the negotiation that Republicans say they want to have under threat of economic calamity to get spending under control. And taking things off the table is meant as a, as a pressure valve release for that. I think you can appreciate that if you're a person with a mortgage. But again, that doesn't mean that McCarthy controls the people who want calamity. And if you don't think they can do it, I'll point you back to the 15 votes that it took for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker in the first place. And now if you weren't worried when I started this diatribe, you should be a little more worried now. It's serious. It is. And I'll just pick up on what you're saying. I'll use my reporter's prerogative here just to say, yes, I have covered so many of these and and share the kind of fatigue and resignation I think so many people do. But as Todd's saying, I think from where I sit in Washington covering Wall Street, uh, this does feel different. It feels different in the way that I think that uh, people in the investment community, in particular the business community, just don't know what to make of what's going to happen next. And, And Todd rightly points to how routine for better or worse, this has seemed in, in years past. This this does not seem uh, routine. I want to stick with Congress here. An independent senator, Kirsten Cinema, now has a 2024 challenger from the left. Cinema left the Democratic Party in December. Uh, and this week, Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego uh, announced he's going to jump into the race. People of Arizona are actually going to have a fighter for them, fighting for the people that are working every day, the people that actually decide how much they make per year by hour, not by their income tax at the end of the year people that have to decide between paying their utilities or paying the rents, uh, figuring out how to make ends meet, whether they're going to get generic food uh, this year or they're going to actually be able to afford maybe a little more brand name. Uh, I'm fighting for those people. Senator Simmons no longer fighting for those people. That's the congressman speaking with MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell earlier this week. And uh, Josh, I wonder sort of how you see this shaping up. We're still a ways out, of course, from 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 the election, but we're we're looking at what I gather could be a, a three way race here. You've got an independent senator, Ruben Gallego, running, and then a Republican. So it, it could be uh, different than what we've seen in the past. I wonder how you see that shaking out. Well, I mean, it's a good question. I think you know Arizona. I think has always been um, you know just kind of an uh, very hard to figure out in terms of what the electorate's like. I mean, they're very conservative in some respects, but I think they just had something on the ballot about legalizing psilocybin and other, you know, um, uh, you know, um, hallucinogenic mushrooms. So mm-hmm. there's a very, very independent streak there. There's, you know, kind of a contrarian streak there too. Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, Gallego is a, a Marine combat veteran, served, uh, you know, in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's been a representative in, in Arizona. Um, I think that is it is a state that's pretty open to a third party, to an independent candidate. But um, and, you know, cinema herself is impossible to pin down. It's like putting your finger in mercury. I mean, her positions uh, are kind of all over the map. There's no real, um, you know, you can't really predict what she's going to do. Um, so I think it's basically going to be way up for grabs. I think it'll be a fascinating race to watch and to see how the electorate responds and see what, um, 
you know, what, what kind of issues um, come to the, to the fore in terms of what, what, what is, re, you know, um, res, you know, resounding with voters. So we'll, we'll just have to see. Mary Harris, that's, that's one race where you have a sitting senator who hasn't said if she's running for re-election. The other, of course, is in California where the senior senator, Dianne Feinstein, uh, hasn't indicated if she's going to, to run again uh, when, when her term expires. But we've seen uh, some candidates jump into the race. Uh, Adam Schiff, the congressman, Katie Porter uh, as well. Um, such an odd thing to watch unfold as you're left wondering whether or not the incumbent is going to, in fact, run for re-election again. Yeah, for real. I mean, both of these races show that the Democratic Party is just having this little mess going on right now in terms of, you know, it's 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 just not all that organized. Like I think about cinema, for instance, cinema made the choice that was right for her by becoming an independent right after the Democrats clinched the Senate. That choice was the right choice for her. She, um, you know, was able to avoid a primary where she probably would have lost because she's united Arizonans in their opposition to her, you know. And so it's just it's this funny thing. The, the party itself is in a funky spot with both of these races. Kirsten Sim is celebrating with a trip to Davos after that, where she addressed some of these uh, some of that that independence that you're just talking about a moment ago. Um, I want to turn to a Senate Judiciary hearing that took place uh, on Capitol Hill this week, aiming a Ticketmaster Swifties. Of course, fans of Taylor Swift lambasting the company uh, at the end of last year after it fumbled online sales for her upcoming tour. Uh, some of the lawmakers at that hearing might be Swifties themselves. Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. A purchaser of a ticket being able to sell it to someone else. I think it's a it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. Darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country... As a uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say we know all too well. One more Taylor Swift quote. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? That's all I've got to say. Thank you. Senator Lee, unexpected uh, <laughs> unexpected Taylor Swift fan. That's the one that stood out to me. Todd Swillis, what do you make of, of the hearing that took place? We're laughing at uh, the fact that they were kind of... Uh, cumbersomely quoting some of these these lyrics, but um, this is a big issue. This is a company that that merged um, just a few years back. There was this consent decree associated with that, some worry about how big it was becoming and what it would control. Um, pu- putting aside the, the Taylor Swift element of this, there are now concerns being raised anew about this company uh, being monopolistic. Yeah, and, and before we talk about Live Nation and Ticketmaster and the pain it causes concert goers, let's talk about Mike Lee for one second, because that's the quote that stood out to me as well. Um, I cover uh, I cover democracy. I cover threats to democracy. I cover January 6th. I cover the coup attempt. And one of the big concerns is the return to normalcy that's uh, embedded in our politics, the Overton window shifts and behaviors that were once outlandish or um, just unconscionable become normal. Um, it was a good giggle line. Uh, senators can't resist quoting Taylor Swift and they know <laughs> or that their everybody's- staff can, I guess. Yeah, yeah I mean, they know everybody's watching. They know, look, I, I watched coverage of this hearing on entertainment tonight. So that tells you why senators are all clamoring to quote Taylor Swift. They know how this thing's going to get covered. Great laugh line from Mike Lee. Um, You know, talk about a nightmare. Go back and read Mike Lee's texts before January 6th. Mm. This was a United States senator who was actively texting colleagues, actively texting the White House, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, 
urging um, the appointment of fake electors, urging a scheme where if states appointed alternate electors, Donald Trump could hold on to power in contravention of the votes, uh, the voters of the United States. He switched gears when he realized it was uh, it was going to be a non-starter and it wasn't going to work once it reached Congress because he's also a, a pretty able and smart lawyer. Um, so I, I'm entertained when Mike uh, Mike Lee sits on the committee and does jokey lines about Taylor Swift. And then I go back and read his texts and read about how enthusiastic he was about a coup in the United States. Um, I want to make sure that's out there because I don't want us to forget about our elected officials Mm. and how they behave. Now, uh, Live Nation, Ticketmaster, um, yeah, they do have a consent decree. And one of the big concerns, one of the big um, points that senators are raising in this hearing is that Ticketmaster was not supposed to be um, doing things like bullying their competitors. They have such control over the market, Live Nation, that even – my understanding is that even when Live Nation doesn't control the concert venue, they can still intimidate smaller venues and venues <laughs> owned by other firms because they control the tickets. So they get onto these, uh, they get onto these other venues and they say, you're going to meet our ticket targets. You're going to meet our prices. You're going to do this our way or we're not going to sell tickets to your concert and then it will be half full. So good luck. That's a level of uh, market leverage that monopoly laws and consent decrees are supposed to prevent. <laughs> and that's one of the important things that came out in the hearing too. So, so we'll see. Um, we'll see what the Senate does with it. Um, I- if anything, we'll see what the Justice Department does sure. because a hearing like this. Why do they also do this, David? They know the DOJ is watching. The DOJ has an active antitrust division, and they're trying to push them into doing something here. You have given me the perfect segue there, Todd, and I appreciate that. We had another big antitrust story to mention from this week. The Department of Justice in eight states suing Alphabet, accusing Google's parent company of abusing its power uh, in digital advertising and ad tech and corrupting the market. Mary Harris, um, this was a, a, a huge indictment, a, a lot of parties involved here, uh, and a big moment for the, the Biden administration. This is the first real big antitrust case that we've seen uh, during the Biden administration. What did you make of what's laid out there? And there's, I, should say, I should say, again, it's like 200 pages, and there's a lot of technical stuff here about the way that, that Google operated. But broadly speaking, what does it say about this administration's approach to, to antitrust? Well, I mean, it hits close to home, right? Like I work for a digital (laughs) news website, right? Google is a big part of my life. And 80% of Google's revenue comes from advertising technology. So this is a huge part of Google's business. You know, I mean, the administration, this is is the fifth antitrust lawsuit filed by U.S. officials against Google since 2020. But it's a big one because this is an industry where they really own it. Like since 2009 or so, they've been buying up every part of ad sales for the web. And they've basically (laughs) – the way one Google executive put it, according to this lawsuit, is that the way their ad business works, it's as if Citibank or Goldman Sachs owned the New York Stock Exchange Mm -hmm. because they own every part. You know, if you are getting an ad on the web, it's probably going through Google. And the question is, should that be happening? And what the government wants to happen here is they want to break Google up. And so it'll just be interesting to say how far they get and whether that happens, because they have lots of evidence. You know, at the press conference announcing this, they were, you know, reading out, like, here's what Google itself is saying about this. And it sounded pretty damning. And indeed, that's the request that Google would break up its its ad business, which again is so central to this company, and certainly is how it got to be uh, as big as it is. So something to follow there. Again, that announcement from the head of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice, Jonathan Cantor, and of course we're watching what's happening with 
Federal Trade Commission as well, uh, Lena Khan pursuing many of these cases as well, waiting to see what, what comes of that. Uh, great to speak with all of you. Mary Harris hosts, hosts Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? Todd Zwillick is the host of the series Breaking the Vote from Vice News. Josh Meyer is the domestic security correspondent for USA Today. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll discuss some of the biggest news from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White, and this is the global edition of the News Roundup. We'll wrap up the most important stories from around the world. One of the biggest ones this week is from the world's largest democracy. In India, a new film from the BBC has many questioning the state of press freedom there. This regime wants to accommodate the Hindus and basically disenfranchise the Muslims. The idea is to make India a Hindu nation. There is a Hindu population in India, more than um, around 80%. Major support for BJP comes from those people, those who consider themselves as Hindu. That doesn't mean anti-Muslim party or anti-Sikh or anti-Christian party. That's a clip from the documentary India, the Modi Question, released by the BBC this week. It examines the role that Narendra Modi, now the prime minister, played in the Hindu-Muslim riots 20 years ago. Later in the show, we'll discuss why the government is blocking all efforts to view it. We'll also look at political turmoil and riots in Peru and at COVID numbers in China. The journalists who help me break down those stories are Jennifer Williams. She's the deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Anne-Marie Hordern is the Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. He co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Uh, Let me start with Ukraine. And a big focus this week, of course, was on tanks. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. Of course, was President Joe Biden on Wednesday announcing that the U.S. will send 31 M1 Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine. Jennifer, let me start with you. This was a change of tack by the the administration. There was a long debate over whether or not to send these tanks, uh, and then all of a sudden it happened. What, What led to the decision by the United States to send them? Yeah, basically, it was a whole lot of uh, backroom dealing, a lot of pressure, a lot of back and forth between Germany in particular and the Biden administration. Um, You know, we heard uh, that, you know, this is, um, you know, a decision that, that the Pentagon recommended, right? They're saying that. But... We heard from Pentagon leaders basically all week uh, and for several weeks saying that that these tanks were not the best choice, that these were not going to be, you know, what Ukrainian troops really needed, that they're very difficult to get trained on. They're very complicated tanks, which they are. Um, But basically what happened is that, you know, Biden administration really wanted Germany to give these Leopard 2 tanks that they have that they think would be a better fit for the coming offensive. Um, wanted countries like Poland and others to be able to give their Leopard 2 tanks with Germany's permission. Germany basically said, look, we don't want to send these tanks. We don't want to okay these tanks uh, because we're worried that Russia is going to see this as really provocative if Germany is just sending in a bunch of tanks. Uh, Germany also obviously has a bit of uh, historical, you know, trauma, um, you know, still left over from World War II about uh, being seen as sending tanks <laughs> through Europe. Mm-hmm. So Germany said, look, you know, U.S., if you guys send some, we'll do it too. They basically came to this agreement, even though Biden is saying that the Germans didn't really pressure him. That's kind of what happened. They finally came to an agreement that everyone's going to get together and send a bunch of their own tanks, and hopefully that'll help. 
Free the Leopards, that was the uh, the call on social media. And Anne-Marie, let me just ask you about sort of how catalytic this was. So you have this announcement by Germany and the United States. And just to look at the timeline here, it's going to be a long while, many months before these tanks from the U.S. make their way to, to Ukraine. But talk a bit about what it set in motion, this decision first by Germany and then by the U.S. Well, as you were talking about, this was a huge reversal in the sense that as of recently as last week, no tanks were going there. Uh, now now they're happening uh, in a big way, not just the Leopards, but the Abrams. I think the most important thing about the Abrams is that they are not a drawdown from the U.S. stock. They need to be built. So the timeline, David, is really difficult to predict. When will they actually get on the ground in Ukraine? Um, but what it has done is it's really open, almost opened up the floodgates for Ukraine to ask for even more. Now they're really asking for long-range missiles and for the F-16 fighter jets. What we've seen play back and forth over the course of the year is the U.S. and the Western allies the Ukrainians will tell you dragging their feet, but maybe being more hesitant on what kind of weaponry they will send. And then at the end of the day, they come through and they do send it. So I think the big question is, after this, what comes next? We heard a bit from the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, this week addressing that. He did in an interview with Sky News in the UK. Of course, it takes some time to train uh, crews to be able to operate these battle tanks. At the same time, we have seen uh, how capable, how skilled the Ukrainian uh, uh, soldiers' personnel are in uh, uh, in learning how to operate NATO uh, standard uh, uh, weapon systems. Uh, so therefore, I'm confident that this will go uh, as fast as possible. David Rennie, talk about the timetable here. So Anne-Marie laying out that these have to be made in Lima, Ohio. We'll talk about Lima, Peru a little later in the show. But in Lima, Ohio, they're going to manufacture these tanks. There's going to be all of this training that's taking place. What's the motivating factor for, for doing this? Help us understand the concern about what's likely to happen in Ukraine in this war come spring. I mean, look, these are also not only does it take a while for these things to be built, delivered and the training. Um, they're also, as, as, uh, as, as the others said, these are very sophisticated machines. And one of the details that people were saying when they were making the case against sending the American tanks is that they use uh, their engines, these very sophisticated turbines that use jet fuel, whereas the German Leopards uh, use diesel. They're much easier to run. They're much more familiar. Um, I think what's fascinating uh, in terms of this timeline is that it may not matter when the American tanks turn up if it gives the political cover, not just to Germany, but to other European governments. So you're seeing the Poles were really kind of pushing to be allowed to send German-made tanks, but also people like the Norwegians, uh, people like the Finns, uh, the Spanish, because there's about 2,000 of these German Leopard tanks in arsenals all around Europe. But the fact that it's even the promise that those American tanks are coming one day, the fact that that was the cover that the German chancellor needed, I think is causing some soul searching uh, on, the on, the, on the European side, because this is a war on European soil and NATO as a whole, including the European allies, have been pouring more and more weaponry into Ukraine. And yet it turns out that until America takes the risk of facing down the Russians if the Russians regard this as a, de as a desperately dangerous escalation. Mm. Until America was willing to be kind of the point of the spear, the Europeans were not willing to go it alone. And I think you're seeing a lot of kind of not just talking about how long these tanks will take to, to, to go, but why was it necessary for America to be the one that was going to take the kind of the pain from Russia? And I think there is a risk to this as well, a geopolitical risk, which is they were already seeing uh, Russian. And in fact, where I am in China, the propaganda machine revving up and saying, you hmm. see, this is, a, this is a proxy war. Uh, this is America launching a proxy war against Russia. Russia is now not facing Ukraine. It's facing America with these incredibly powerful weapons. 
And Marie, pick up there, because I know that, that Bloomberg News had a big piece this week about that relationship between China and, and Russia. Uh, talk a bit about what, what that exclusive uh, revealed and sort of this, the state of that relationship uh, right now as this war continues. Yeah, so we have reporting that the U.S. believes that China may be sending um, non-lethal, but they will be dealing with Russia and sending them materials that they need to continue fighting the war. Now, this would be Chinese state-owned companies, but obviously the relationship between the government and state-owned companies um, is very close. There's almost one and the same. Um, There's no... We don't have anything yet from the administration on hard and fast details, but this would be... Uh, seen for the U.S., especially as obviously they have their own tensions right now with China, this would be seen as them doing more than they should be when it comes to aiding Russia. But at the same time, we heard at the start of last year, Putin, Xi Jinping saying that their relationship, their friendship is limitless. Um, So really, that's the only friend Putin has left, not just when it comes to potentially getting goods, um, but also the fact that they have billions of dollars in yuan these reserves, this is the money that Putin will be able to cash in on to continue waging this war. Jennifer, I'll turn to you lastly here just on uh, what the response from Russia has been so far. And David Rennie bringing up sort of how this is being perceived, this decision is being perceived in Russia. You had Ned Price, the spokesperson at the State Department this week, talking a bit about this, uh, saying these are sovereign decisions on the part of the Ukrainian government regarding where, when, and how to strike back at Russian forces who are on their sovereign territory. Um, how is this being received in Russia so far as we know, and how is it likely to change their, uh, their strategy going forward? Well, the Russians are certainly not thrilled. Um, you know, they they have been um, kind of preparing for this in southern Ukraine, digging rows of trenches, building fortified bunkers to stop a potential Ukrainian advance. Uh, the, to be clear, that's the kind of operation that tanks were invented to deal with. Mm-hmm. So they're not really thrilled with that. You know, the, the Western allies have been trying to really walk this tightrope of saying, look, you know, we're not actually a party to the conflict. We're just helping the Ukrainians to the point that, you know, they won't even let the tanks be given directly to Ukraine. Like they're not going to go and actually bring them onto Ukrainian soil. They're basically making the Ukrainians go to other countries in NATO and go pick them up and bring them back. Um, They're trying to be really careful to say, look, we are not a party. Russia has been saying, look, we don't care what you say. You are involved in this conflict. This is a huge escalation. they're obviously not going to you know, love that these tanks that are going to be really critical to Ukraine's ability to break through Russian lines in southern Ukraine are going to be coming through. Um, you know, they also really would love to see a break among the allies, um, you know, more discord. And the fact that there was this agreement and everyone seems to be on the same page is yet another setback for Russia trying to, to break up this alliance. Before we pivot to China, I want to stick with Ukraine for one question more. I'll put that to you, uh, Jennifer Williams. I mentioned this just a moment ago. We saw this shakeup in President Zelensky's cabinet earlier this week. It goes beyond that to regional governors as well. But this is a, a country that for a long time was seen as having to deal with an awful lot of, of corruption. That's certainly something that's uh, playing in the backdrop here of, of, of these decisions. What do we know about the shakeup that's happened here? What does it say to you about uh, how seriously President Zelensky is taking this issue, sort of how he's approaching this issue of, of corruption in his government during wartime? 
Yeah, definitely. So in terms of, you know, the details, as you said, as you said four deputy ministers, five regional governors um, were sacked by Ukraine's cabinet. We have uh, Ukraine's deputy prosecutor general who also announced his resignation. Um, there are all kinds of, of issues that were involved in terms of bribery, uh, officials splurging on lavish lifestyles amid the war. Um, it's said that Semenenko um, took a luxury holiday out of the country, uh, which is very controversial because uh, a lot of people may not remember, but there is a ban on all men leaving Ukraine because of the war. Um, they are required to stay and many would like to leave and, you know, be able to go and potentially uh, not, not go on vacation, but be able to try to make money and, you know, to, to support their families while Ukraine's economy is obviously not doing well amid the war. So we had a bunch of very, you know, kind of issues like that that were percolating. This, though, comes against the backdrop, as you said, of a much broader issue of, you know, concerns about corruption in Ukraine, longstanding um, concerns there. And you have the West, and in particular, you have uh, Republicans in the U.S. who have brought this up and have raised this as a questioning why we are supporting Ukraine, whether those complaints are being made in good faith or not, I think is a separate question. Mm. But it is, you know, something that Zelensky is very aware of, that, that you know, he is being given lots of money, lots of equipment, lots of weapons to fight Russia. There are concerns that, you know, making sure that money is being spent correctly, making sure that, you know, this isn't being diverted to corrupt officials, etc. So I think this is both addressing a real issue, but also meant to show the U.S., to show potentially Republicans even in the House, um, to show Western allies more generally, look, I'm taking this seriously just because there's a war on doesn't mean I'm going to let corruption, you know, run wild through my government. You can trust me. You can trust, even when he came and when Zelensky came and spoke in front of the Congress, he made a point of saying, you can trust me. You can trust my country with these resources. Let's turn to China now. 80% of that country's population has had COVID-19, according to a prominent Chinese government scientist. And for context, that's more than a billion people. David Rennie, you know, I, I cover markets and the economy, and we're, we're told and have learned to take Chinese government statistics with, with, with a grain of salt. What are we hearing from the Chinese government about the incidence of, of COVID-19? How much faith do you put in the numbers that, that you're seeing about the incidence of, of, uh, of the virus there in China? Um, I think we should be very skeptical of the death numbers, which uh, began the year being ridiculously low. I mean, the kind of the hundreds, the the dozens a day. Uh, and that was because they they actually admitted that they had set this kind of rule for how you reported a COVID death, which was kind of the strictest in the world and, and basically just didn't count any. Um, they're now saying that they're being much more honest. So they say at the moment, I think we're running at about 70,000 uh, COVID deaths now in China. Now that's compared to over a million reported in America. That 70,000 number is not remotely credible. Um, If you just look at the fact that uh, I think that number that 80% of the population have been infected is perfectly credible Hmm. based on the fact that in my reporting around China uh, for the last few weeks, pretty much everyone I've spoken to has had COVID and all their family has, even in remote villages. So it's swept through this badly vaccinated country that had never met COVID before because of the incredibly strict lockdowns for the last three years or so. And so it really just ripped through this very, very contagious Omicron variant. So if you just if you just apply the same kind of fatality statistics to China that you see in almost any other country, the broad range is that they must have had hundreds of thousands, if not a million dead by now. Why does it matter? So maybe some listeners will be saying, why does it matter? You know, we're, we're on the other side of this peak. It matters for a couple of reasons. One is that we need to know whether the current variants are really lethal. So if you're not telling us how many people they're killing, 
That's important information that mm -hmm. scientists around the whole world need to see. And it's also an intensely political question, because remember that China has spent the last three years talking about how many de deaths there were in places like America and saying that this was proof that democracy is selfish and decadent and doesn't work, whereas the Chinese Communist Party kept people safe and alive. So this is a gigantic lie, to use the technical term, and it is a political lie. And we will probably never know the truth. But I can tell you personally, I've spoken to Chinese people uh, whose own family members died. And the doctor said they were not allowed to write COVID on the death certificate, though their family members mm. had died of COVID. David, I want to ask you about the, the moment that we're in right now, and you write about this in, in The Economist, we're at a point where so many people are traveling home for the Spring Festival or, or Lunar New Year uh, in China. I think the estimate was more than 2 billion people will take train journeys over the course of these these few weeks. How is that affecting all of this? And as you've been watching that unfold, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from people about their concern about, about COVID-19 as they make these journeys that they haven't been able to make for many years? So that has been a bit of a surprise. You're right that we're just at the end now of Spring Festival, which is kind of like Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. It's the biggest holiday of the year, and there is a tradition of going home to see your family. And not only do migrant workers only get home once a year, many of them working in those big factories or building sites on the coasts, but also with the COVID restrictions, for many of them, it's been two years since they saw their, their own children, their own parents back in the village. So there are a huge number of people on the move. It's two billion return journeys, so a billion people on the move, roughly. I was with them on some trains across rural China uh, last week. We thought that the movement of people from big cities full of COVID into villages might spark a whole new wave of infections and also potentially a lot of deaths because there's a lot of old people in the villages and the medical system is unbelievably weak uh, in those villages. The surprise for me and for colleagues of mine when we went out into the villages is that Omicron is so contagious that it actually hit most villages that I went to maybe a week or two after it hit Beijing. And so it's just it's just racing across this country, partly because for tragic reasons, uh, they under-vaccinated, they didn't do any real vaccination campaign in 2022, their vaccines aren't great to begin with, and no one had met COVID before. So it is, you know, just a, a population absolutely wide open to getting this infection. And so that decision, you know, do I go home and infect my parents, actually tragically was already taken for many people because their parents already had it before Spring Festival. And that was what I'd say the majority of people told me when I when I talked to them. One more story we're keeping track of. Uh, on Thursday, U.S. Africa Command said in a news release that the U.S. military had, quote, conducted a successful counterterrorism operation in Somalia. The raid believed to have killed Bilal al-Sudani, an Islamic State leader, along with 10 other Sudanese Islamic State associates. Um, Jen Williams, what can you tell us about this this operation, how it unfolded, how similar it is to, to other kind of special operations we've seen like this and, and the importance, uh, as the U.S. saw him, uh, the importance of, of, of getting Bilal al-Sudani off the battlefield. Yeah, so um, I'm going to take those in reverse order. So Bilal al-Sudani uh, may not, you know, be a household name to most people in the way that someone like, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or Osama bin Laden may have been. But he was uh, a very important and uh, kind of effective leader inside the Islamic State. Um, according to, um, you know, the Biden administration, the defense secretary made a statement saying that he was, uh, that, that al-Sudani was responsible for fostering the growing presence of ISIS in Africa, but also, and this is the really important part for funding the group's operations worldwide, including in Afghanistan. And so, you know, he was really kind of a, a, a linchpin of funding of logistics um, for ISIS, you know, uh, basically around the world. So, 
a very important leader. Um, there were also 10 other uh, of his associates were also killed in the raid. Um, it was pretty remarkable, too. This raid was, a you know, not a drone strike. It was actual U.S. Special Operations Forces, commandos taking place, uh, taking part in this uh, raid in this remote mountainous cave complex in northern Somalia. Um, it looks like it took months uh, of planning, of spying, um, of, you know, practicing. They did a mock-up of the cave complex in much the same way they did for, you know, the compound where Osama bin Laden was found. Uh, a lot of planning went into this. They had been prepared to do this for months. They finally got the timing and said, okay, let's go. Uh, according to the administration, they wanted to capture al-Sudani and take him in alive, but um, according to them, it, quote, resulted in his death. Um, it, it seems to have been kind of more generally a really big and serious operation. It's also one that the administration has been, um, uh, I would say, a, a bit surprisingly kind of really open about. We don't tend to hear as much, uh, if anything at all, about the operations that are done by U.S. forces in Somalia. Sometimes they pretend that they didn't even happen. So I think it's it's pretty remarkable, and I think it, it you know goes to show, one, that there is a lot more activity happening in Somalia. We usually hear mostly about the al-Qaeda-affiliated group al-Shabaab. This is Islamic State. We don't hear as much about them in that region. Um, but I think it also goes to show that the administration is still... You you know, paying attention to the ISIS threat more generally and trying to show that they are still keeping on top of it. Shift now to India. The question, is India trying to suppress free speech? That question continuing to reverberate after India's government invoked emergency measures this week to block a new BBC documentary. The program examines the role of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Without banning the film officially, its Ministry of Information blocked segments of the Modi question from appearing on YouTube. The New York Times says this was done with the cooperation of the site's parent company, Alphabet. Documentary tracks Modi's rise through the ranks of India's ruling party, the BJP. Um, Anne-Marie, just broadly speaking, looking at this from from 30,000 feet, uh, what's behind this controversy? Why is it happening now? Well, I think it's happening now because obviously you have this documentary that has come to the forefront and people are looking for answers about what went on. So when you have something like this, this BBC documentary, uh, it's getting a lot of press and headlines um, and you have the Indian government trying to block people from watching it, it is going to get a lot of attention, right? People want to see why is this government trying to uh, block this. Um, the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting, they've issued um, directions for how they need to block it. Their YouTube videos, do Twitter postings. Um, but people are still going to be wa uh, watching it. And what this really does, David, it, it chronicles what happened um, with... Narendra Modi, when his time in Gujarat and his involvement in the riots that took place in the city and the region in 2002. So this is a, a two-part film. Part one, focusing on those claims that Modi encouraged violence against Muslims during those, those riots in Gujarat. Part two, turning to the role of police and cell phone footage showing officers beating a Muslim protester to death uh, in Delhi. Here's a clip from that program. The clear message is that this is a Hindu majoritarian country and anybody who does anything or takes any action which is against the sentiments of the Hindus of India are going to be targeted. To generalize from this incident, to mean that this is the standard practice in India, this is the character of the BJP, is to my mind an unwarranted assumption. Hearing from a politician there, an Indian author and journalist as well, David Rennie, uh, Prime Minister Modi re-elected for a second term with a healthy majority in 2019. Um, why, why is this government so upset about this documentary, one that is not produced, wasn't produced for audiences uh, in India? 
Well, because the the world's opinion, the democratic world's opinion of Narendra Modi has shifted uh, so dramatically. Remember that these uh, race riots, these pogroms against Muslims, which left thousands dead in 2002, when Narendra Modi uh, was, as Amari says, the chief minister of the state of Gujarat and had been at least at a minimum kind of whipping up uh, Hindu nationalism to a level that people thought was dangerous. He was seen as so clearly implicated in those riots from 2002 that the American government three years later denied him a visa, citing uh, that he had broken American law on, on whipping up particularly severe violations of religious freedom. It was only when he became prime minister, rather than being a local leader, that the Americans basically had to give him a visa. Now, because India is seen as an ally against uh, China, among other things, you're seeing the Americans, any number of Western democracies, turning a blind eye to the growing evidence, not just of past offences that Narendra Modi and his Hindu nationalist party uh, committed, but a growing evidence that we now see with this response to the documentary, that they are in fact trampling on free speech and they're not the kind of democratic champion and ally. But geopolitically, everyone wants to stop thinking about what Narendra Modi's past is, and everyone wants to turn their, to, to close their eyes to the evidence that he is becoming an increasingly autocratic figure who is whipping up very dangerous ethnic and religious tensions in an India that was born as a secular republic, precisely because it's got hundreds of millions of Muslims, uh, as well as hundreds of millions of Hindus. And so the BBC, with this documentary, is doing the job of good journalism, which is to remind us that there are questions that even if they're very inconvenient for powerful people to ask, they do need to be asked. Uh, new uh, Washington memoir out, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, out with his book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. And I, I bring this up because there's uh, an India component of it. There's a lot that we could talk about that's that's in that memoir. But um, there, there's a part of the book in which he alleges that India and Pakistan came very close to a nuclear conflagration, I think, is as he put it back in, in 2019. Um, quite a claim. And I, I wonder sort of what the Secretary, former Secretary of State says about what, what he said happened a couple of years ago. Yeah, he's talking about how this happened uh, during a conflict and between Pakistan and India. There was a flare-up, and he was in Hanoi with the president. This is when they were having those meetings with North Korea. And he said that they asked, he asked everyone on both sides, do nothing right now. And he said it's because of the U.S. involvement that they were able to avoid this horrible outcome. Uh, Jen Williams, let me have you pick up on that. And, and again, maybe you can put into some context here how seismic that allegation is. And then um, speak more generally just to the, the, the import of this book, what we've learned from from the this the latest Washington memoir that we've gotten from, from the former Secretary of State. Sure. So, you know, I, I don't think it's um, it necessarily like shocking that India and Pakistan uh, have, you know, <laughs> had some conflicts over the years. Um, I do think, you know, the fact that they are both nuclear powers uh, and that they came that close to war, according to Mike Pompeo's accounting of it in 2019, is very frightening. Um, you know, it's not something that uh, that anyone wants to see. Um, you know, I think a lot of the focus more recently in particular has been on India and China and their border clashes. Um, you know, a recent um, survey was done in India in which um, a vast majority of Indians cited China as their biggest threat to India rather than Pakistan. So I think this goes to show that there is still very much, you know, a concern about potential conflict between the two, you know, longstanding rivals. Shift now. Tensions are higher than usual in the occupied West Bank this week. Israeli troops killed nine Palestinians in a raid in the city of Jenin. Another Palestinian was killed by Israeli troops while protesting the killings. Following the announcement of the deaths, two rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel. 
Here's reporting from the BBC. Taxi driver Mohammed Amori stopped near a UN clinic when he saw Israeli special forces storm in. We heard gunshots. We fled into the Janine club and we stayed under siege there for three hours. The army besieged us in the club and we heard the sounds of clashes. After about an hour, military bulldozers destroyed cars on both sides of the road. Uh, Jennifer Williams, what can you tell us about this latest violence uh, in the occupied West Bank and sort of how it fits into uh, Israel's larger campaign here uh, when it looks at the West Bank? Yeah, so this raid, um, it was, you know, a a daytime raid, which is a little bit rare. Um, They're usually done sort of at at night. Um, This is part of a a much broader Israeli military counterterrorism offensive that uh, began about nine months ago um, in in the West Bank following a a series of deadly terror attacks in Israel. Um, Basically, on a nightly basis, um, Israeli forces have been carrying out these raids um, in, in Nablus and in Janine and other areas. Um, This kind of broader operation, it's called Operation Breakwater, um, it it has contributed to the highest death toll in the West Bank since the end of the Second Intifada, the Palestinian uprising that ended in 2005. So we're seeing uh, about 250 Palestinians were killed just last year. Um, Another 30 have been killed just so far in 2023. So this is part of this kind of broader... Um, offensive that is really, you know, cracking down hard in the West Bank. Uh, And we're seeing, you know, a a lot of response uh, to it from the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas just recently said that he was planning to cut off security cooperation with Israel. Um, Just to remind, you know, listeners, the Palestinian Authority does govern parts of the West Bank and has this longstanding cooperation agreement with the Israeli forces to help um, police uh, and, you know, clamp down on terror in their own territories. That's always a really complicated um, political maneuver for Mahmoud Abbas, Uh, you know, very much issue of his legitimacy that he is seen as collaborating with the Israeli forces in the West Bank. And yet it is also in his interest to try to clamp down on terrorism. So, you know, he is basically in this awkward political position that he has put himself in. Um, We are seeing, you know, a lot of discontent with the very sclerotic Mm. Palestinian leadership. So we are seeing a lot more um, kind of, you know, terror attacks happening, coming from from groups affiliated with Islamic Jihad, but also other kind of newer groups that are popping up in the West Bank. David Rennie, putting this in a, in a broader context here, we have this new government uh, in Israel. It's dealing with pressures at home. More than 100,000 Israelis have taken to the streets to protest, saying the government is weakening the courts. There's this uh, judicial reform being being proposed. Give us the broader context here, sort of what, what the crucible in which this is all happening. Well, the broader context is that to get back into power, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has formed easily uh, the most extreme government uh, in Israel's democratic history. And he's included some extremely hard right-wing parties uh, and uh, openly kind of essentially kind of religious uh, nationalist parties. And he has come with an agenda. Uh, he, When he was prime minister last time and then in opposition when he was being investigated for corruption, he was already saying that the Supreme Court in particular was much too keen on so being an activist uh, judiciary that was striking down uh, some of the most hard lines of nationalist policies on things like taking land from Palestinians uh, or other sort of hot button issues. And he has now taken advantage of being back in power to try and uh, strengthen political control greatly over the appointment of new judges 
and to limit the Supreme Court's ability to strike down government decisions and government laws. And he says that this is uh, he's not wrecking democracy, which is the accusation of his critics and those protesters. He says he's saving democracy. People are drawing contrasts with countries like Poland and Hungary, where they also saw sort of right-wing nationalist governments reigning in the judiciary, trying to kind of say that the will of the people has spoken. They elected a hard-right government. That's what, what counts. Of course, the fascinating difference with Israel is that Israel is not just extremely close uh, to the United States, but it's also uh, incredibly dependent on foreign investors, particularly into things like its tech sector. Mm. There was a really fascinating story by Reuters uh, about how the tech sector in Israel contributes a quarter of all tax income, uh, about 15% of GDP. And some very prominent tech bosses have come out and said, as if there's a question mark about the independence of our judiciary, then that is going to put investors off and make Israel a much less attractive place to do business. And you're seeing some really senior economic figures, including former central bankers, actually former Netanyahu advisors, mm -hmm. signing an open letter. 270 people signed this letter saying that he is going to hurt the economy with this kind of judicial power grab. Emory Horton, this is the environment into which the, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is going to be uh, flying th this weekend. He's taking a trip to the Middle East, going to Egypt, Israel, uh, and the West Bank. What have we learned from the administration about what he hopes to accomplish there and indeed who he intends to meet with, who he intends not to meet with while he's there? It's going to be a tough one, right, for him to take this trip on, on the heels of, of, of the tensions uh, that is happening right now between the Palestinians and uh, also the Netanyahu government. I think David makes the point um, about this government uh, adds, the tension with this government really kind of adds to the social unrest. Um, it also comes on the heels of when we had Jake Sullivan and Brett McGurk also were just there. And we don't know the details of exactly, but he's going to meet with Netanyahu, Netanyahu but he's also going to obviously meet with uh, the Palestinian Authority president as well. So he'll be meeting with both these people. This one thing that I think will likely come out, obviously, they're going to do whatever they can to quell these tensions uh, on both sides. Uh, the big topic for them will also be not just what's going on um, domestically, but also about Iran. Um, there's really no talks happening about a nuclear deal, and the concern from the Israelis is that they are ever so close um, to to making a, a, a nuclear weapon. And then I think really, you know, if he goes to Ramallah and the West Bank, it'll be about the U.S. talking about the support they want to give to the Palestinian people. Move to Peru now, where deadly protests continue throughout that country. It's been nearly two months since Dina Bularte became president after the removal of former President Pedro Castillo. The protests, which began in the south of that country, have spread to the capital, Lima, and at least 50 people have been killed so far. Uh, Jennifer Williams, many protesters are Castillo supporters, are calling for new elections. Uh, remind us how these protests began and sort of what concessions would need to be made, uh, perhaps to, to quell the kind of unrest that we've been seeing over these last few weeks. Yeah, so um, this basically began when uh, Castillo, um, just a reminder, he is Peru's first leader from a rural Andean background. Um, he has a lot of supporters among poorer uh, Peruvians, among in, in rural areas in particular. Um, he basically was trying to short-circuit uh, an upcoming potential impeachment proceeding. Uh, on December 7th, he ordered Congress dissolved, essentially launched an auto-coup, a self-coup. Um, lawmakers said, eh, nope, you're not going to do that. They impeached him instead. And he was promptly arrested by the national police before he could flee. Uh, 
and his supporters are really not thrilled. They uh, they want him back. They want to have new elections. Um, he was, you know, very much seen as this kind of champion of voices that were very long marginalized in Peru. Um, you know, and because of this entire mess, now you have a lot of his protesters who still, um, a lot of his supporters who, you know, want to see what he was going to do, what he had promised to do. They want him back in power. So you have these massive protests and they are vowing to keep demonstrating, right? They are not going home. And in terms of concessions, you know, Bolarte did try to call this truce. Doesn't seem like that's going anywhere. Um, Also, you know, have cracked down pretty hard with tear gas, et cetera. Um, We are seeing lots of violence. It's, you know, they've had to close down Machu Picchu, you know, the huge tourist site. It's really impacting Peru in a way that we haven't seen like this. Um, And I think, you know, the government is going to essentially have to make really big concessions in terms of, you know, potentially actually having another election. Uh, Jen, just picking up on that, uh, you know, you mentioned Machu Picchu. There's just an amazing piece in in the Washington Post there. Kind of Bogota bureau chief went, made her way to Machu Picchu and had to kind of do it by car because the trains aren't running. Um, I spent some time in Bolivia in 2005 when there were popular protests and there was also a lot of faith in an indigenous leader coming coming into power. Different story that played out differently there, but um, I wonder sort of uh, how you see the efficacy of these protests being. I was struck then uh, in in the mid aughts by how effective they were uh, at bringing the country to a halt, and uh, I don't know that it brought people to the table, but certainly raised the profile of of these issues. How do you see this this playing out? How do you see these protests resolving themselves? Well, you know, I think there is a, a much broader, I mean, they, they do seem to be very effective in the sense that they have essentially, you know, brought a state of emergency to the country and have, you know, stopped everything. And tourism obviously is a huge, um, you know, part of, of the economy with Machu Picchu in particular in, in that area. Um, it is brought the country to a standstill. It is the fact that we are talking about Peru right now, which we don't tend to talk about all that often in global news. Uh, they don't tend to make, you know, uh, the, the headlines quite as much as they are right now. So it's clearly very effective. Now, whether it's actually going to result in what protesters want in terms of bringing Castillo back in power is an entirely different question. He did try to launch a self-coup, which is not a thing you're really supposed to do in a democratic country. So I don't know, you know, whether that's actually going to happen. But I do think that is highlighting a much deeper kind of issue in Peru that is this long-standing problem with corruption um, that has really just eroded public faith and trust in institutions in Peru. And I think we're seeing that this is kind of overlapping now with the kind of more acute issues that brought these protests to a head. And I think we're going to have to see some real changes being made in terms of addressing, you know, the, the increasing poverty, the vast kind of, um, you know, economic economic inequality that we're seeing, and then, like I said, this corruption that has essentially led to all of those other things. So, uh, you know, whether there is a kind of a short-term solution to this that's possible that may bring the protesters, you know, back out of the streets, but I think there is going to be a lot more that needs to be done to really revamp the the way that business is done in Peru um, politically to see any kind of longer-term stability. 
it, it's a rare thing, and I don't say that to pat myself on the back, that, that you have a, a national news program talking about Latin America he, here in the U.S. And I, I say that to turn to David Rennie to ask, to what degree is this registering on the consciousness of, of uh, people in, in China? I was struck when I was in Latin America by how big a presence and growing presence China had there. Is, is this something that is attracting attention, the sort of instability that we're seeing in Peru and, and, and in the region? Well, China's pretty selective in how much it reports on what's happening in the rest of the world uh, to the Chinese people. But certainly Latin America is hugely important uh, because it's a source of uh, things like lithium for car batteries, uh, you know, as China rolls out its electric vehicle revolution. I think also to kind of take a step back, China would say, and there are plenty of other autocrats who would say the same thing, you see, this is the failure of trying to impose a democratic system on developing countries. They would say, you know, look at all these countries where badly divided uh, populations, electorates with very partisan disputes between them in places like Brazil or in Peru or any number of countries, particularly in places like Latin America, you end up with impeachments and Congress being suspended and the sort of the, the different houses of parliaments uh, sort of trying to sue each other and arrest each other and judges being sacked. And, and they would say this is the chaos of a democratic system being imposed on a developing country that should be a left to get on with getting rich. And that's the, the model that China is proposing. And I think for, for democracies like America or like my own country, Britain, that do believe that democracy is a path to development, we have to take seriously the fact that in these very kind of divided, partisan, uh, troubled countries with weak institutions, democracy is not faring well. And that is music to the ears of the autocrats here in Beijing. Mm. Before we wrap up, an update on a story from the file marked Holy Cow, Batman. This week, we were told the rotation of Earth's inner core may have paused, and it could go even into reverse. This was based on research published on Monday that had studied seismic waves. Scientists say what they found was, quote, unexpected. CNN reporting that the spin of the inner core is driven by the magnetic field generated in the outer core, balanced by the gravitational effects of the Earth's mantle. The study's authors argue that based on their calculations, an imbalance in the electromagnetic and gravitational forces could slow and even reverse the inner core's rotation. But they add as all good scientists do, that their findings should be taken cautiously and said more data was needed to shed light on what they call this interesting problem. In the couple minutes we have left, I just want to see what you all are, are focusing on here in the week ahead and what are the, the stories, what's the story that you're going to be uh, paying closest attention to next week? Um, well, I'm keeping a close eye on the uh, the second round runoff at the Czech presidential election that's happening with Czechs going to the polls right now all right. to elect their next president. And David Rennie, how about you here uh, in China? What are you watching? So February the 4th is the first anniversary of that uh, uh, friendship agreement that was signed on the day of the, the opening of the Beijing Winter Olympics between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping that Anne-Marie referred to at the beginning of the show. Uh -huh. And it's time to take stock of whether China regrets offering uh, pretty much open support for Russia in this first year of this awful war in Ukraine. And I suspect the answer is that China thinks that this story isn't over yet and it could still work out quite well for China. And Antony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, is going to fly in a couple of days later into Beijing. And it's going to be incredibly revealing what kind of welcome, what kind of access uh, he is given in terms of all that reporting about maybe China uh, thinks it's too close to Russia, is too uh, at odds with the whole of the West. So we're going to see some very, very concrete signs coming out of China about where they really think their interests lie. The only man covering more territory than we than we did today, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, as he embarks on that trip. David Rennie, thank you very much. Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, co-host of the Drum Tower podcast, Anne-Marie Horder and Washington correspondent at Bloomberg, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the Negotiators podcast. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help from Kellen Quigley. 
Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anchiano produces our podcast with help from Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.